From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, January 13th. Today, I'm joined by Dan Carroll and Rachel Halfacre of the Milken Institute's Center for Financial Markets, who are on scene at Milken's Public Finance Forum in Washington, D.C. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in Impact Investing. The new Republican majority in the U.S. House of Representatives has promised to make combating ESG a top priority. In her latest column for Impact Alpha, Imogen Rose Smith explains how the Republican stance on ESG has flipped the script on the traditionally close relationship between the GOP and business. This comes as more companies embrace the business case for increased sustainability, diversity, and climate resilience. Republican-controlled state-level bans on doing business with banks and other financial institutions who embrace ESG are costing taxpayers in those states large sums of money. Texas alone has already incurred extra costs totaling more than $300 million. A study from the organizations As You Sow and Series found that proposed ESG bans in Kentucky, Florida, Louisiana, Oklahoma, West Virginia, and Missouri could cost taxpayers in those states more than $700 million. The House GOP may also be eyeing proposed climate risk disclosure rules from the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, which have yet to be finalized. Scaling Impact is a new series on catalytic capital from Impact Alpha. Lori Spangler of Courageous Capital kicked things off with a guest post in which she points commercial investors to the types of deals the broader market has yet to recognize. The deals that catalytic investors are advancing using patient, flexible, or risk-taking financing to take early successes to scale. Investors are turning waste into value. Generate Capital, through its Generate Upcycle unit, is backing Cedron Technologies. Cedron Technologies is building a facility near Seattle that turns municipal sewage sludge into clean water, though not drinkable water, along with sustainably producing nitrogen fertilizer. In Nigeria, PACAM raised pre-seed funding to streamline waste recycling. PACAM plans to use software to manage recycling bins and trucks while integrating the so-called waste pickers, an informal term for the people who collect and sort recyclable material from open landfills. And finally, Impact Alpha has rounded up some of the annual impact reports from wealth and fund managers. Elevar Equity highlights their networked business models for serving low-income customers. Veris Wealth Partners calls out a shortage of investable solutions that directly tackle environmental and climate justice head-on. And Atlas Impact Partners, a long-short impact hedge fund, makes the case for shorting what could be called the, quote, addiction economy. Head over to Impact Alpha to check out the whole set. Now it's time for our future conversation. And I'm joined once again by Dan Carroll and Rachel Havfiger of the Milken Institute's Center for Financial Markets. The great deployment is on, as Impact Alpha reported this week. That's the historic build-out of low-carbon and sustainable infrastructure needed to cut emissions in half by 2030 and get to net zero by 2050. Spurring this climate action is hundreds of billions in federal spending in the Infrastructure Bill, the CHIPS Act, and the Inflation Reduction Act. Making sure that communities of all kinds can take advantage of a once-in-a-generation opportunity was a focus of the Milken Institute's Public Finance Forum in Washington, D.C. this week. So, Dan and Rachel, 
what are you trying to accomplish at the Center for Financial Markets? And what is the problem you're trying to solve? Yeah, great. Uh, and thanks for having us on. So for the last three years, we've been working on efforts to basically address sort of an emerging market America problem. There are scores of underserved rural and urban communities that are interested in building community infrastructure projects of all types that we can get into details about. As you said, there's an exciting new flow of federal dollars across a, a number of different programs. And on top of that, you know, we have a, an annual public finance forum where um, a $4 trillion muni market uh, and experts from there meet and issuers from communities meet. Two thirds of infrastructure in the U.S. actually funded by muni bonds at the state and local level. So aligning that spending, thinking about the new 21st century infrastructure needs and in particularly connecting communities that are um, less able to access federal grant and loan programs and pursue the opportunities around low carbon and more equitable outcomes has been a key focus of the conference this week. And how do you define community infrastructure? What does that mean exactly? Well, community infrastructure um, is about all the essential public services, whether it's in the built environment, buildings, transportation, workforce, economic development, all the things to build a, a resilient local economy. Um, is how we approach it. So it's both hard and soft. And most importantly, in many cases, you know, you take a, a four story building that has three stories of housing that can be a microgrid and energy producer has things going on inside of it, whether it is a workforce training center, an entrepreneurial green lab or an emergency center. The next time there's a flood or a fire, this this need for specialized community infrastructure and blending dollars across federal state impact and your crew impact alpha investors is a critical challenge for communities and and so that's community infrastructure and i understand you've launched this new community infrastructure center uh to help communities and project developers access that diversity of funding that might be available to them uh what what is the problem you're trying to solve specifically with that community infrastructure center yeah, sure. So one of the big mandates that we had as a part of kind of the design of this platform, we got our funding initially from the Economic Development Administration to support communities, particularly distressed and underserved communities, navigate those really mission critical pre-development activities that come before communities can even apply for different grant opportunities that they may be eligible for. So once folks have actually decided, I want a project, whether it's a wastewater treatment facility, a four-story commercial mixed-use build, Building, uh, solar, broadband, you name it, any of the community infrastructure projects that Dan mentioned, you have kind of this, this big gap between the time that you've decided what your project priorities are and, and your ability as a community to actually go after different federal funding streams, whether it's conducting a feasibility study, hiring out um, folks to conduct an environmental assessment, completing your site acquisition costs, going through uh, the grant writing process. Those are all really, uh, really tough hurdles to overcome. So through the Community Infrastructure Center, we currently serve about 100 different communities across the nation, navigating those different activities. And a big part of that is connecting them with the right resources and people at the right time as they're navigating through those activities. So finding those grants, finding different investors, understanding how and when to conduct different studies and how to advance their project so that they have a more competitive opportunity to go after some of these federal dollars. The other thing I would throw in there, if you think about this as sort of a matchmaking platform between communities, investors of all stripes, experts, 
you know, we've built a tool so people can search not just for federal grants, but for other sorts of grants as well, state and philanthropic. And in particular, as I think about some of your audience, you've got a lot of emergent green cement companies that are happy to find one community to pilot green cement or a new biodiesel digester or other waste of value projects. So as we invite in, whether it's climate tech and project developers there, traditional infrastructure players, broadband, um, helping people find each other and reduce the acquisition costs for project developers, I think is critical. Who are the users of this portal? So you talked about the 100 communities across the, the U.S. that are involved in this. Who are the actual participants? Are, the, what, are these local government officials? Are they uh, nonprofit leaders? Uh, are they business leaders? What, what, what are the, what's the use case or the user profile here? Yeah, I'm really glad that you asked because before we dived right into kind of building this platform, we didn't want to solve for a problem that didn't necessarily exist. Um, and we didn't want to build a platform for a user that wouldn't ultimately find this valuable. And so as part of our research, we worked with our partners at the EDA, but also with the Rural Community Assistance Partnership to cast a wide net. And we kept it pretty general on purpose when we said community. Um, you know, we weren't overly prescriptive. We didn't say you had to be from the mayor's office or a county um, or a municipality. Rather, we said, are you a project sponsor? Are you looking to advance a specific project on behalf of your constituents? Up to, to someone's discretion to decide if that kind of aligned with, with how they identified. And what we found is it wasn't just the municipalities or the counties or economic development districts. There were also nonprofits, and, and I should say tribal nations, of course. There were also nonprofits, universities, civil society, community-based organizations that were working on behalf of their constituents. And there might be a critical handoff over to the municipality at some point in that project progression, but they are right now the biggest advocates for that project success. And so, um, you know, in terms of the individual user, we have everyone from the mayors of small towns to grant writers to economic development uh, district administrators. We've got a number of different individual users that are either working on behalf of their direct constituency or folks that are kind of operating as this shared services entity at a county level um, uh, for different communities. You know, the other thing I'll add, I mean, we've been in essentially quiet beta mode for the last months as we've been sourcing communities. One of the things that we've been doing at this event, the Public Finance Forum this week, where, you know, Milken Institute, we convene in various ways at various events, cross-sectoral players, and we've been doing demos and outreach to folks as we move towards expanding and opening up the platform. So letting various constituencies, both in the muni bond space, the community development space, the climate world, traditional economic development, uh, everyone's trying to find each other and find new sources of capital, but most importantly, finding low cost or no cost uh, owner advisor expertise to move a project forward, which is a real challenge other than in very large uh, cities or agencies. So a lot of our focus at the Milken Institute is connecting experts who are willing to either give time or expertise or share documents or uh, other things that can make it easier and less expensive for underserved communities to access uh, this, this, these opportunities. That sounds a lot like technical assistance and capacity building uh, in some way. So where, where might the funding come from for those pre-development uh, uh, initiatives? Like, so how, how, what kind of funders are out there stepping up uh, to, to kind of fill that gap? 
Yeah, so about three years ago, as I said, we started a, a multi-partner campaign to lift up the importance of there's lots of planning dollars, there's lots of low-cost financing, but pre-development dollars, people call it de-risking dollars, you know, there's a continuum of that. There's federal programs like Brownfields and Old Tiger Grants are out there, but we pushed hard with a bunch of partners, city, county groups, et cetera. We got $4 billion of pre-development funding in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. We have billions more, uh, depending on what you call it and how the rules are written around the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund um, and around uh, a couple of the EJ Block grants, whatever you want to call it, technical assistance, concessionary capital and capacity. We all have our different jargon, uh, but that is so critical. If you don't have that, that's sort of the valley of death for community infrastructure that, that other investors face with some of their companies. A term that we've seen we've seen a lot in the impact alpha space is catalytic capital, uh, because it's the capital that kind of catalyzes additional financing from larger pools of capital, whether that's mainstream uh, commercial capital or a government uh, funding of some sort. What's sad, Brian, is that we had a we gave out a bunch of deploy or die pint glasses. Unfortunately, we can't can't offer you one over the over the podcast today, but we'll find a way to get it to you. Deploy or die. I like that. And it's a pint glass, you say? Yes, it is. N not a shot glass. Okay. Not a shot glass. Um, now, so what is the role for the private sector uh, in, in this platform? And how can the private sector plug into uh, this space? I think Dan can definitely speak to, you know, the role in terms of financing and, and kind of coming in as early partners on the financing side. But I will say on the side of entrepreneurs, small businesses, folks that are actually working on the deployment itself, whether uh, you're a construction firm or an entrepreneur that is focused on kind of the te technology that's driving a lot of these uh, next generation infrastructure projects. Really, the takeaway and the opportunity here for private sector to come in as partners is working through a lot of those early activities where you might have to spend a little bit of time educating a lot of these community partners on how to conduct different studies, how to go through different funding channels. You know, if we were talking about IRA and different tax credits, you know, a lot of those have to go directly through the municipality and can't come directly through the private sector. So there's an opportunity for private sector partners to come in early and actually coach some of these public sector partners on how to go through that process. A lot of these folks that we're talking about, you know, there's only one or two folks in their staff team. It's a lot. It's a huge lift for a lot of these folks in addition to their day job to chase after these dollars and chase after these opportunities. So our messaging is be patient, work hand in hand with these folks. It unlocks a massive market opportunity, but it will take a lot of time and, and early um, investment into those communities as they're working through permitting and these federal applications. But that ultimately the message is that it's worth it uh, because they have as much of an interest in deployment as, as the private partners do. I mean, part of what we're trying to do is build the pipeline for our pipeline. Everyone's like, where's the pipeline of shovel-worthy investment ready projects. So we've got this pre-development phase to get community scale projects in the two, five, 10, 20, $50 million range and get those moving with pre-development dollars and the tech assistance and matching services of the community infrastructure center. We had a, a panel and as you know, there's different types of emerging market America investors. And we had a panel that maybe you can link in the chat for the podcast. I think we, we, we tried to bring forward to our audience, like different investors are looking for different things. And what's really exciting 
being at the Milken Institute is we have a $30 trillion asset owners network of major institutional players that really can't afford generally to look at projects below $200 million in size, but are very interested in the emerging returns and opportunities in the community scale beat. And so we're starting to look at financial innovation labs and other ways to, I hate to use the term bundle because it's not so simple as bundling together 20, $20 million energy efficient wastewater treatment plants, but that's where I think the market is going. We're certainly seeing a lot of major uh, uh, private equity firms and other investors bidding up utility scale solar and wind and this new generation of community infrastructure center projects. As we get that moving, there's going to be a lot more interest in it. And we've been interested in partnering with firms like Spring Lane. I think you had a story recently from Nate over there on a project developers boot camp. It's that level of private sector engagement early on is super important, I think, in building pipeline. And, and getting to that scale, you know, as you said, you can either bundle or you can develop projects uh, that are replicable and transferable. And that's another way to get to scale. 100%. And this community infrastructure center, this portal that you have just launched, uh, is there any vetting process for uh, the, the types of projects and the types of organizations that come to this platform? You know, there's going to be there's going to be vetting as we scale this up. So we'll be. Um, uh, announcing a call for projects coming out of uh, the, the conference next week. I think the main way we're vetting right now, we've got a team of folks that will be doing that, is also focusing on what we're offering. So we are trying to avoid the current situation where through federal and state programs that thousands of bespoke projects are brought forward. And what we're trying to do is serve the most underserved communities at once. So we're kind of taking a food truck approach. You know, if you want a fish taco, 25,000 square foot building with a microgrid, we have people can help you do that and replicate it. So the main vetting process right now will be a limited menu where we can offer low cost, no cost assistance to projects. And then over time, um, how we add bespoke projects and how we bring in more players into the platform is something that, you know, is a good problem for us to have. You know, we, we just want to go slow enough that we're really providing a good level of concierge service and office hours that Rachel and her team are providing. Now, finally, the uh, conference, the Public Finance Forum that the Milken Institute put on this week also featured uh, the World Bank's David Malpass. So how similar or different do you see the challenges in international development um, and what you're seeing in the U.S. when we look at these kind of community development? Well, I'll say something and then maybe Rachel can invite in as well. I mean, I think we use the term uh, when international development folks return to America during the pandemic and find some of the challenges, if you say emerging market America uh, as a set of challenge around blended dollars and capacity and concessionary capacity, they get it right away. We don't use the term emerging market to describe a community we work with. They're just a community that's trying to get in the game and build a project. But there is that playbook and that experience from abroad is critical and useful. And what we try to do with the two days of the conference, in fact, with Malpass, but also other uh, project developers to kind of toggle back and forth between the U.S. challenge and opportunity with IRA money and the lessons learned from abroad that, that we can apply now. Yeah, and I just add, you know, one small piece of that as an example of, of where we see a lot of the uh, methodology that's been applied in the last 20, 30 years of international development, I don't know, science, if, if you will, is one lesson that we've learned from working internationally um, is that you can't necessarily come in as a power builder if you're not from and for that community. 
coming in and influencing project selection, project prioritization, um, kind of influencing where and why a community should do a specific project. That's not necessarily the role of the outside private sector TA investor partners. Rather, where we really see our role is uplifting these communities is identifying folks that have already done a lot of that table setting for themselves and saying, as a community, we've identified that this is our priority. We are now looking for partners to help advance this priority. Um, and that's really one of the big lessons that, that we see a lot of parallels with as well is kind of know our place in the private side and in, in the NGO side is uh, partners, but not necessarily early influencers at that power building uh, level. All right. Well, we've been speaking with Dan Carroll and Rachel Halfacre of the Milken Institute Center for Financial Markets about their newly launched Community Infrastructure Center. Thank you so much and congratulations on your launch of this portal this week. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, that's going to do it for this week's Impact Briefing. You can read all about the Community Infrastructure Center and the Public Finance Forum at impactalpha.com. Thanks to our producer extraordinaire, Isaac Silk. Are you ready to try Impact Alpha? Sign up for Impact Alpha Open, free, directly at impactalpha.com. If you want to go deeper, grab a subscription and get full access to Impact Alpha, including the award-winning morning brief and our popular Agents of Impact calls. Just go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and choose an annual subscription. I'm Brian Walsh, Head of Sustainability for the capital markets firm TPI Cap. Be sure to check back for next week's Impact Briefing, and until next time, take good care.